you spend half a million pounds on a building project only to then learn that planning permission has been refused. That scenario is a reality for Steve and Lorraine Kinsey from Norfolk. They forked out £500,000 converting a seaside barn into a dream home. Uh, Unfortunately, and pretty quickly, the dream has turned to a nightmare. Upon the all-too-late discovery that the council have, in fact, uh, forbidden any new builds in the area where they've just rebuilt. Mrs. Kinsey, uh, half a million pounds poorer, said this, We thought that gaining planning permission would be a formality. Now, as we continue our series, Restoring the Ruins, we come today to a vital juncture in the building project. Last week, we met Nehemiah, an exiled Jew who had a dream, not to reconfigure a barn, but something much larger to reconstruct an entire city, to rebuild the broken walls and to reestablish the gates of Jerusalem. And yet, for Nehemiah's project to begin at all, he must first of all receive planning permission for the project. And make no mistake, this will be No mere formality. For one thing, his audacious bid is lodged to an unreasonable, megalomaniacal king. That makes it a little more tricky. Furthermore, this unstable king, Artaxerxes, has already previously ruled not to go ahead with this particular project. And therefore, one might think, that the chances of success would be slim or none. But in point of historical fact, and we have the documents to prove it, our story concludes astonishingly with planning permission granted. Not only with the king of Persia allowing the project to go ahead, but even sponsoring the building himself. Now that raises an obvious question for us this morning. It raises a curious question for us today. And the question is obviously this. How was this achieved? How in the world of a grumpy tyrant was planning permission given when it didn't seem to be a formality? Well, I open my Bible for answers. It's where we always turn. And we open again this morning to Nehemiah chapter 2. And I simply draw your attention as you're reopening your Bible there to those ten verses of the second chapter. I draw your attention to three contributing factors to planning permission. Three factors without which planning permission wouldn't have been given, the project wouldn't have begun, and the book of Nehemiah, which is so profitable to us as a church, would never have been written. It all could have stopped right here 
at the beginning of chapter 2. So, first factor that is prerequisite for planning permission is patient prayer. Patient prayer. As Peter impressed on his last Sunday morning, Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Last week when we left him, he was, surprise, praying. And you remember the reason why he was praying. At chapter 1's opening, he had received some bad news, some bad news indeed. Some relatives visiting from the city of Jerusalem had reported to him that Jerusalem, its walls and its gates, were lying in ruins and ashes. And with this knowledge of a defenseless city, with this knowledge of a remnant of God's people, also his own people, who are now open to the derision of the surrounding nations, with this knowledge, even although he is 800 miles away at this time, Nehemiah feels heart anguish and falls to his knees in pleading prayer. Prayer is always, for Nehemiah, the first resort. Sometimes he responds with more than prayer. He never responds with less than prayer. And yet as this week we span the gap between chapters 1 and 2, we discover something else, something more about his prayer life. That not only must Nehemiah pray, but he must pray Patiently. There is, you see, though you cannot see it in the fraction of a gap between chapters 1 and 2 in the literature, there is, you see, a sizable chronological gap between these chapters. There is a waiting period. So our story begins in chapter 1, verse 1, in the month of Kislev. That's round about December time. This is when he hears the news. This is when he begins to pray. But in chapter 2, verse 1, we're fast-forwarded to the month of Nisan, which was round about March or possibly even April. In other words, and you don't need to be much of a mathematician, Nehemiah has spent four calendar months waiting, waiting, waiting for God. And pleading, pleading before the throne of God's sovereign grace. Four long months. Friends, we must take stock of the fact that while we live in an instant world, our God does not always work in an instant. Though our culture is speeding up to a blur with its fast cars, fast foods, convenience this or that, with his high-speed internet connections, with his online shopping, with next-day delivery, yet, and it's hard for us to get our heads around this, our God may not be in a hurry. He takes four months. You know, that's quick in biblical terms. If you think of Abraham, Abraham waited over 25 years, a quarter of a century, to see the promise of Isaac fulfilled. 
If you think of Joseph in our daily Bible readings just now, he spent two whole years in prison, waiting for God to get him out and move him up. If you think of Israel, the nation, they spent 400 years in slavery, they spent 40 years in the wilderness, and they spent 70 years in exile. God's not in a hurry. Even, and I won't uh, give you endless examples, even as we think forward to the New Testament and the Lord Jesus, we think of one who didn't burst onto the public stage immediately, but who waited till 30 years of age before it was his father's time to begin. This is not to say, of course, that God always takes his time. I could give you other examples of where God works with lightning speed. But it is to say this, that God is always more patient than we are and often much slower than we would prefer. I don't know about you, but I am one of those impatient people. I'm the kind of person that does not like traffic jams. You can ask my family, they will fill you in on the details. Here's another thing though, and this is maybe true of you too, I don't like spiritual traffic jams either. Because when I look at my Christian life and the very, very slow incremental growth, I want to be growing into the fullness of Christ-likeness now. And when I think of non-Christian friends or family who I pray for or who I witness to, I want them saved today. I want to know God's guidance for my future, the whole thing mapped out right now, please. I want to see others who I'm encouraging in their faith in just a small way. I want to see them growing hugely, immediately, and instantaneously. And you know, God doesn't always work like that. Part of the problem, I think, is that we fail to realize that waiting on God is not exactly the same as doing nothing. That waiting doesn't necessarily mean inaction. It is not a passive thing to wait on God. It is an active participation. Just as you can be sitting in the traffic jam and making the most of the time, whether speaking to someone on your earpiece on the phone or listening to something productive on the stereo, so it can be that as you're waiting on God, you are maximizing the opportunity. And we see this too for Nehemiah. Because you see, this waiting period, we learn, was also a praying period for him. Chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that fasting and prayer began this phase of time. The long prayer, which launches out from verse 5, is either a summary of the prayer that was characteristic of this waiting period, or it may be the prayer that concludes the waiting period. Either way, it's not simply that Nehemiah just waits around, you know, on his deck chair for four months. As he waits, he prays. And as he waits and prays, he fasts. Now, question for us in our individual lives for a moment. When we wait on God, and there will be many occasions when we need to wait on him, will we wait Productively. Will I wait on God productively? 
If I may apply this, branching out even to our corporate life as a church. Uh, Peter intimated again this morning an important members meeting coming up in a few weeks. I wonder how you're going to make use of the time till the meeting. You know, it'd be easy just to get a bit frustrated and just want to get, you know, get the, get the meeting to happen. It's important to use the time productively during these three weeks, two days. What have you done even since hearing about that meeting last Sunday? Are we just sitting in the traffic jam waiting on the queue? Or are we using this time to wait on the Lord and to speak first to Him before we speak together? I imagine that will make the meeting much more productive when we get there. Now, the wonderful news is, and this is good for those of us who are impatient, is that we don't need to wait forever on God. Even although He is eternal, even although He doesn't have to work within our 70 years plus 10 time frame, He very often and very graciously intervenes quickly. And we see for Nehemiah that this was a limited period of waiting too. It's dramatic and it's suddenly announced at the opening of chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Remember, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And so we imagine the scene. Here comes Nehemiah with the tray, bringing the wine goblet to the king. It's a day just like any other day. It's a task that he has done maybe thousands of times before. But now the twist, for he adds, I had not been sad in the presence of the king before. Nehemiah is looking gloomy today in the presence of the king. Now there's a bit of a question here. And the question is this, did Nehemiah staged this. Some people think that, that Nehemiah's patience finally ran out. That after four long months of waiting, and who could blame him, that he finally decided he was going to let his guard down and let his feelings come out. Other people believe that this really is not something you can feign. Sadness with, you know, the drawn cheeks and the, and the saggy eyes and so on. And they believe that, in fact, the sadness just seeped through on this day. Well, I'm not really sure which is correct, but I don't think it matters too much. Because either way, two things are true. Number one, Nehemiah had waited for four months. There already was a significant waiting period. And secondly, his sadness, whether it seeped through or whether he deliberately allowed it to, was a genuine sadness. Certainly the sadness and the grief itself was not feigned on Nehemiah's part. No, indeed, the week on week, the day on day praying about the situation in Jerusalem had increased the burden on Nehemiah. Now you think about that for a moment this morning. In his Nehemiah commentary, John Kitchen says this, we assume that prayer produces answers. It's true, it does. But prayer may produce other results as well. Prayer may, for example, produce pain. 
pain is exactly what Nehemiah got from his praying. I thought that prayer was something that always lifted burdens. Sometimes prayer actually increases burdens. As we wait before the Lord and as the gravity of what we're praying for is impressed upon our hearts. And so here is Nehemiah's burdened heart now displayed on the contours of his face. And the king notices this. And this is not good news. In these days, you did not do sad in the king's presence. Persian kings were fairly fragile folk. Uh, It was okay for them to get emotional, angry, sad, whatever. But not for their staff. In fact, there was a Persian law that forbade anyone from being sad in the king's presence. If you looked down in the mouth, it was punishable. And so no wonder when the king asked Nehemiah, why does your face look sad? Uh, Nehemiah journals for us, I was very much afraid. Wouldn't you be? The waiting is now over. Nehemiah's personal future hangs in the balance. The planning permission remains to be granted. And if Nehemiah will obtain it, another factor will prove crucial. So secondly now, prudent planning. Prudent planning. Peter mentioned Ravi Burns this morning. Ravi Burns, of course, famously said that the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Now that is true much of the time. But here's something else that's true. Without any plans, projects pretty much always go awry. Planning is essential to projects being successful. And so the planners among us will therefore very much appreciate, I imagine, Nehemiah. See, Nehemiah wasn't just a patient man. He wasn't just a prayerful man. He was also a prudent and a practical man. He was a man who not only could pray well in the prayer meeting, but he could talk to you afterwards about the house renovations he was doing. He is down-to-earth savvy. And indeed, his prudent approach here is so obvious, isn't it? It can be seen in several ways as he responds thoughtfully to the king. Did you notice, first of all, his polite tone? I think this is incredibly prudent. It would be rather imprudent, wouldn't it, to be impolite to the king. Nehemiah begins in verse 3 with a respectful opening. May the king live forever. In verse 5, when requesting something from the king, he doesn't demand it, but requests it if it pleases the king. And if your servant has found favor in his sight, similarly deferential is verse 7. If it pleases the king. And so even although Nehemiah is undoubtedly emotionally charged at this moment. And even although this pagan king is in many respects misguided from a Jewish perspective. And even although Nehemiah firmly believes that the sovereign God will somehow, way, make this building project happen. Even still he minds his manners. Even still, he says, please. Now, there's prudence in that. When we interact with those who don't share our worldview. 
when we interact maybe particularly with authorities. We're not likely to persuade people of our position, never mind forgo their own, if we don't address them in a courteous and congenial way. So Nehemiah is prudent in this way, but also observe, secondly, his personal approach. We can, we can only think this must have been planned, this response from Nehemiah. The way that he so carefully steers clear of the politics, the way that he keeps things personal and not public and political. You see, here's how Nehemiah could have responded. Why am I sad? I'll tell you why I'm sad. Because the city of Jerusalem is lying in ruins and you, Artaxerxes, are partly to blame. Now hear me out, king. Thirteen years ago, in the 17th year of your reign, you allowed a contingent of Jews to return to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra. They rebuilt the temple and they began to rebuild the walls. But when the surrounding nations heard of this, they were jealous, they were obviously our rivals, And these scaremongers came to you. They sold you a false story. They said that we Jews, the moment our walls would be intact, would usurp your authority. And you, king, bought the lie. You signed the order. You stopped the building project in its tracks. Therefore, king of great political blunders, the reason I'm sad today is because of your past policies. Now that would have been 100% true and 100% daft. What does Nehemiah say? Well, he keeps politics out of it. In verse 3, he makes no mention at all of the past history. Indeed, if you read carefully, notice he doesn't even mention Jerusalem by name. Instead, he talks euphemistically about the city of my fathers. He means Jerusalem, but he doesn't say Jerusalem. And so depoliticizing things, he instead comes from a personal angle and he says, why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins? My problem, he says, is that this city of my homeland, this dear place, is where my forefathers are buried and the burial plots are themselves buried in piles of rubble. Now who likes to see the graveyard of their loved ones trashed? I mean, even cold King Artaxerxes can feel some pain in that and sympathize. Well, it evidently works, this approach. Because Artaxerxes obviously begins to feel sympathy. He doesn't express it. As a a king, he just sort of moves on to the next question and he says, uh, Nehemiah, What is it you want? Talk about the million dollar question. Deep breath. Oh, and prayer too. Uh, You just can't stop this man from praying, can you? Then I pray to the God of heaven. Right here in the middle of the conversation, you know, between question and response. He prays. Couldn't have been a long prayer, could it? Couldn't have been a 10 minute, 15 minute intercessory prayer. Uh... So Barber calls it a prayer gram. Warren Wearsby calls it a telegraph prayer. And many others dub it an arrow prayer, which he shoots up into heaven in a fraction of a second. Of course, we too, though not for going systematic 
planned times of prayer, we too also can come in moments of emergency, in moments of challenge, and we can fire heavenward our arrow prayers too. In that moment before answering the boss. In that moment before responding to the tense situation in the home with your spouse or with your children. In that moment before answering that non-Christian friend who asks that question. Help, Lord. Give me your wisdom, Lord. Sending up the arrow. So Nehemiah prays. And then he answers. And in his answer, we again see another mark of his prudence. And the third obvious way in which he was prudent here was he was planned. He was incredibly planned out. I mean, how many of us, if the king had put us on the spot, if the king had said to us suddenly, what do you want? We would have planned out our answer sufficiently to give the whole response, one, two, three, four, without a blunder at all. Nehemiah had obviously prepared. And without hesitation, he makes three requests. Number one, he asks that he might be given a leave of absence. Can he return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city? Verse 5. In addition, number two, he asks that he might receive a letter of permission granting him safe passage back to Jerusalem. Because on the way, there were a number of folks who would stop him and who wouldn't want this project to continue. Verse 7. And third, Nehemiah makes a request, essentially for government funding. In verse 8. And may I have a letter to Asaph? He's obviously found out the name of the guy that owns the king's forest. He's gone to the trouble of researching. Uh, The keeper of the king's forest so that he will give me timber. And we notice, too, that he's already figured out what he needs the wood for. He needs timber for some gates. He needs wood for the walls. And he also, quite nice, needs some wood for his own house that he's going to build. See, Nehemiah's not fumbling around here. He's not making this up on the hoof. John Kitchen, again, has a great comment. He says, the fact is... Nehemiah had been praying for a miracle and planning on getting one. He hadn't just spent these four months period praying over this matter and waiting patiently before the Lord. He had been working out his plans as to what would be required. You know, there are two great mistakes we can make in our individual Christian lives and in our church life. The first mistake is we can pray but not plan. And the second mistake is that we can plan but not pray. Both are fatal. There's the one mistake where we can have a false spirituality that thinks we need only pray and we don't need to think things through. Or we can rely on our business acumen and think that prayer is surplus to requirements. Both are fatal mistakes. Nehemiah was a prayerful planner. I think that's one of the great lessons we learn from his life. He's practical and he's spiritual, all rolled in to one. How easy, for example, it can be as we think of this practically. For us to begin a new project, say, in the church, without having planned it out. How easy, for instance, to begin a new ministry in the church. To perhaps have uncovered a new 
meet, uh, maybe it is a significant issue, to have genuinely prayed over it together, and yet finally to see it fall full of a lack of good planning. We just didn't think through what time would be best to have the meeting. Or the fact that when we're meeting is a really bad time. We just didn't plot out how we would communicate it to people. And so there's no need to spiritualize it, really. We just didn't plan and think it through. Often, maybe more often than we think, we fail not from a lack of piety, but from a lack of planning. So there's a little word to the wise for us in this. Prudent planning was a second key factor in Nehemiah's success. However, and finally, there was also a third factor without which the other two would have been irrelevant. It is the most substantial factor, no doubt, in the success of Nehemiah's bid. And in this case, it has nothing to do with Nehemiah at all, and it has everything to do with the Sovereign Lord. So thirdly, powerful provision. Powerful provision was the ultimate cause of Nehemiah's success. Verse 8, it is so important. You could gloss over it, but you dare not. And because the gracious hand of the Lord was upon me, the king granted my request. There's the reason. The gracious hand of the Lord. It's rather as if we've been watching one of those puppet shows, you know, with the puppets on the strings. And the operator, you know there's an operator there, but he's hidden out of sight. But it's almost as if, just for a moment, a fleeting moment, the curtain is pulled back and we see who is pulling the strings from the top. And it is not King Artaxerxes. And it is not patient, prudent, planning Nehemiah. It is, notice the cause, because of the gracious hand of the Lord. This is maybe the biggest surprise in the story, that the most powerful earthly despot alive at the time is not ultimately sovereign and is not ultimately even in control. The sovereign Lord is powerfully overruling. And, you you know, we were just doing a study in the student team this morning. You see this in all the exile books, in Daniel, in, in Esther, in Ezra. And again here in Nehemiah, it just comes through again and again, this great theme of God's overruling hand in the affairs of nations and in the affairs of his people. King Artaxerxes may be a king, but he's a king on God's chess table. And God can move him around according to his will as and when he pleases. And Artaxerxes in turn can move all of his resources to make great things happen for God's people. Isn't that a wonderful thing when God's enemies are moved by God's hand to bless God's people? Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it wherever he pleases. I think that's something that we find easier to imagine with a relatively good king. You know, maybe someone like a King David. He made huge mistakes, but he was pretty much a righteous man most of the time. Sure, God can work through a King David. You know, we also find 
the truth in Scripture, that God can work through and direct through even evil men who are bent on destroying God's purposes and God's people. I mean, arguably, we have more examples of that in Scripture than God using good kings. We think of Pharaoh, that wicked man whom God used to display his power and glory. Exodus 9. We think of the Persian King Cyrus, a predecessor of Artaxerxes, how he was used to liberate God's people from Babylon. It wasn't that they broke out, it was that he let them out. We think of a Caesar, as we come to the New Testament, who issued a decree that all of the people within his realm should be counted, and yet little did he know that it was no act of coincidence, but that the sovereign Lord of history was moving him to fulfill a prophecy that Mary and Joseph would go to Bethlehem and that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. You think of Pontius Pilate, maybe the greatest example of all. And the authorities of his day, who though wicked, who though responsible for their own evil deeds, were actually bringing to fruition God's astonishing plan to see his own son nailed to a cross and crucified for the sins of the world. By the way, that includes the sins of everyone here this morning which can be forgiven through that shed blood of Jesus on the cross for us. God doesn't need to use godly people to work out his purposes. That's how sovereign he is this morning. And through this, God grants all the requests that Nehemiah asked for. It's amazing, isn't it? In fact, actually... He throws in a little bit extra, as God often does. Because you notice that as well as all these requests being met, there's an additional little thing, that as uh, Artaxerxes sends him out, the 800-mile trip, he also adds in, for good measure, a military escort too. Which, as far as we know, Nehemiah didn't ask for, but he's given it so that he will be safe and secure all the way. God's enemies don't like it. As the chapter concludes, and we're going to hear much more about them in the weeks to come. But Nehemiah goes forward in the knowledge that even in the face of opponents, his God is in control. I began this uh, sermon this morning by speaking of a failed bid for planning permission. You know, the tremendous truth of Nehemiah chapter 2 is that God is never thwarted in his bids, and in what he does. Not only was planning permission granted in Nehemiah's case, but we too, in our personal lives and in our corporate life as a church, can know God's provision for the way ahead of us. If we are patient, if we are prudent, no doubt, if we are prayerful, absolutely essential, and ultimately, We wait upon God's provision in God's plan for whatever needs we have personally and as a church. Let's pray together. Father, some of us in this room are in a hurry.
We want to be where you want us to be. And we want to do what you want us to do. But we're impatient. We're frequently imprudent and unplanned. And too often we're not prayerful. Father, forgive us. And Father, whether it's in our own walk with you, our ministry for you, whatever that is, or our church life together, help us draw lessons from Nehemiah too. And help us to trust that you are absolutely sovereign and completely in control over not just the affairs of men, but the affairs of our lives and our church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.